Good morning. I'm glad to be back. Um, I'd like to continue in uh, 1 Timothy. We've been looking at that over the last few times I've been here. More than a few, I think, now. <laughs> so, um, we're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, the first part of the chapter. Um, I've been a pastor, one way or the other, since 1987. And uh, over that period of time, I've seen a lot of things that the church has done, a lot of ways the church has dealt with problems and changed and all kinds of things. One of the things that has sort of amazed me is how, um, I guess over the last 15 or 20 years, a lot of churches are popping up that are um, made up almost exclusively of young people, people that are college age or under 30. And uh, the consequence of that is, is they, they seem to struggle. Um, when I was a Southern Baptist pastor, uh, we, we had a church start down in Bozeman um, for the college kids down there. We were all behind it. Everybody got excited. Um, I think the first year they had like 60 or 80 kids in there, plus the pastor. The pastor was a friend of mine, an uh, older gentleman. He'd gone to U of, or Montana State University there. Had to get it right. <laughs> and, uh, and then he'd come back as a college pastor. And he started this church. And in that first year, uh, I believe mainly because of immaturity, they had a conflict within the church and the church split almost just instantly. Um, that to me was, I was going, what's going on here? You know, why is this happening? Well, there was literally, there were no older folks in the church. There was no balance of age. There was no maturity in the church. <clears throat> in May of 19, or May of 2009, um, my daughter had, uh, um, gotten married, and, and uh, the guy she married is a super fine guy. I just love him to death. Um, I threatened him with his life when he came and asked me for my daughter's hand. Uh, but otherwise, I love him. He's just a, a fine, fine man. So he and another gentleman, they're, uh, I think they were like juniors in college, started a church in Thomas Road Baptist Church's Fellowship Hall. And I went in May of 2009, and when we got there, there were about 30 people there. And uh, I, I was going, well, what's going on here? Um, is this the church? I thought y'all were doing a little better than this. He said, oh, well, uh, 50 or so of our folks have left and gone home for the summer. They were all college kids. So I asked him, I said, um, what kind of offerings do you guys take in? <laughs> I mean, do you have much money? And uh, Nate and Becca just sort of went, well... <laughs> And I said, are you paying these, this pastor of yours? And, and they, well, <laughs> but it was made up of 80 basically college students. I was the oldest guy there, and I was younger then. <laughs> so it was, it was sort of astounding. Now, the neat thing about that is the original pastor did eventually leave. He didn't last, I don't think he lasted two years. And they eventually brought in another young man who ended up being like Nate's best friend. And the church began to get traction and they attracted some of the older folks, the middle-aged folks, and it began to become stable. They went through several different um, places where they met. And uh, now um, they run about 1,500. Uh, they, uh, they have a church called Rivermont 
Well, it's the Gospel Community Church at Rivermont. It's in Lynchburg, and it's a wonderful church. And what they've, they have a church planning plan. I'm running off schedule here, or running off a little bit. But they have this neat church planning plan where they take, uh, they combine together with older churches that have often um, come to the point where they don't have any young people in the church, and the church is dying. Goes the other way too, you know. And they come in and give the church new life. They've got a lot of uh, wise and uh, older, mature people in the church who have uh, given it a lot of stability. They financially they're stable. Uh, they run um, at Rivermont. They have two campuses now. They at Rivermont they run about uh, twelve hundred or something, and at College Hill they run about four hundred, and almost probably half are still students. But they had to bring in the rest of the church, the rest of the body so that it become a stable church. I think the church in America needs to be thinking about that. We've um, sort of lost our, our understanding of the need for the entire body, not just a segment, not just an, a, a group of, of folks at a certain age point. I'm not saying that to be critical, but that's where we are. In a, what, what Satan likes to do is he likes to divide and conquer. Whenever he can bring division, he's in the business of conquering. And so he will bring division of one kind or another, and in that, um, one group will go off this group, that group, whatever, and the end result is the church becomes weaker instead of stronger. Paul was dealing with this with Timothy in the very first century in this church in Ephesus that uh, Timothy was assigned to. Timothy was a young pastor, but he had, it, it, we will see in this passage, he had a, quite a bit of an older congregation, and he was struggling at times to deal with uh, how to take care of these folks, what to do with them, and how to minister to them so that they could um, grow as a church and continue to reach the the community there. So I want to give you this morning, I, I'm going to call them four relational responses uh, that are outlined for the church here. Um, the title of the sermon is Church Etiquette, if you would. But it's how to get along in one sense with each other. So if you have your Bibles, we'll just, I want to read the uh, first 16 verses and then we'll go back and look at them together. He says, Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with all purity. Now, he's covered the whole span of the church right there. Young, old, men, and women. Honor widows who are really widows, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents. For this is good and acceptable before God. Now, she who is really a widow and left alone, trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. And these things command that they may be blameless. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those in his, of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken from, into the number. And not unless she has been the wife of one man. 
well reported for good works, if she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. But refuse the younger widows, for when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation because they have cast off their first faith. And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. Therefore, I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. For some have already turned aside after Satan. If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them, and do not let the church be burdened, that it may relieve those who, re who are really widows. May God bless his word. Can we just pray for a second? Father, we ask that you would uh, take this passage of scripture and that you would apply it to uh, the life of this church and to our lives so that we might continue to bring light to our community so that we might um, reach and touch our community for Jesus Christ. So Lord, open your word to us. Fill us with your spirit. You go before us now in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing to see, I think, is, is that we're to relate like a family. Um, Paul begins this section with a command not to rebuke, but actually <clears throat> strictly rebuke an older man. It's, he says, uh, do not rebuke an older man. Do not strictly, in other words, don't get mad at him. Don't throw yourself at him. Don't be uh, temper laden with an older gentleman. Timothy, remember, is a young pastor, and Paul is now telling him how to treat the members of his church. He's not to rebuke the older man, but is to exhort him like a father. I had to think about that for a little while, that whole idea of exhorting like a father. Um, my father uh, was a good man, a, a, a godly man when he died, but um, there was a time in our life when he was not. <laughs> and sometimes we had some real knockdown dragouts. Not saying that was right, but I'm saying sometimes in the family there's things that go on that we we're, we're embarrassed about later. We need to learn to be gracious and kind even with fathers that we don't always agree with. There's to be that honoring of the man as one would honor his father. In this, Paul has the fifth commandment. In, in light here, you know, honor your father and mother that it may go well with you, that you may have years. It's the first commandment with a promise. And Paul wants the church to um, <clears throat> behave in that manner of, of graciousness and kindness towards uh, the older folks in the church. He, Timothy is to treat the older man as his father and speak gently but firmly to him to encourage him to godliness. I'm going to quote a man named John Hamby, who is a pastor. I've got two quotes by him. I think he had some good insight into this. He says, your relationship with your father is to be the standard for how you treat other men. Now, just stop there a second. If you had trouble with your father, maybe you need to learn how to treat him like God did. And, and that's, I, I've struggled with that. So I'm just telling you, not all, all dads are sinners. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. We, they all have their issues. The point is not that older brethren should never be rebuked, but rather the emphasis in this verse is on how to be, he is to be rebuked. 
The text literally reads, do not harshly or sharply rebuke an older man. Hamby says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, when dealing with reproving a brethren, Paul says, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. It's up on the board. Uh, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, underline that, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of general gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. The word restore means to mend or repair. It was used in the, Old, in the New Testament of fishermen mending their nets. The point is that Paul wanted Timothy to treat the older and elder men of his church with gentleness and respect as he pastored them help them grow in their faith. And then he tells him to rebuke the younger men as if they were his brothers. Any of you ever had a real intense conversation with a brother? Then you know what this is about. Did you do it with love? If you loved your brother, sometimes you confronted him because you loved them. And this is all about love. Remember, this book is, a, is the order of the church so that they might work out love in their relationships and in the community. So he says they also might need to be rebuked at times, but it, it was to be done in the same way that one would speak to a brother in one's household who needed to be rebuked. It would be straightforward, but with love and the desire to restore and build them up. Patrick Morley, who um, wrote a book called The Man in the Mirror and also started a ministry called The Man in the Mirror Ministry, which is a, a really great men's ministry. He said this, when things turn sour, you have these people to turn to with a problem. Now, he's talking about the kind of person that you can turn to in the church. He says, you, first, he gives 10 points. It just takes a second, so don't go to sleep on me right here. <laughs> he says, first, you can express honest thoughts to them without appearing foolish. Second, they will let you walk through a concern without giving you advice. They're happy to be just a sounding board. Um, that for guys is really hard because we want to fix things. So I always want to give advice and I have to clamp my lips sometimes. Third, they'll risk your disapproval by suggesting that you are leaving your priorities. Fourth, they are prepared to tell you that you are doing wrong. That's a hard one, but sometimes you have to do that. Fifth, when you've fallen into sin, you know they will stand by you. Sixth, you know that together you are facing the future. If she is a woman, you can share with her friend the struggles that are uniquely a woman's, while a man can share with his friend the struggles that are uniquely a man's. Eighth, you can trust them implicitly. So that if you share a confidence with them, it stays confidential. Ninth, when you appear vulnerable and weak to them, they will think no less of you. That's hard. And number 10, you'll sometimes end a time together with them by praying. And that should be one of the things we do sometimes at the beginning of conversations as well at the end. It unites us together when we open our spirits up and pray together. Pray for one another. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, 
verses 9 and 10, he said, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. Verse 10, For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. This is what should happen in a church. I believe led by a gentle and loving pastor who is looking out for the welfare of his people. He equips, if you would, people to have these kinds of traits so that all can be taken care of. One pastor can't take care of an entire church often. As the church gets larger, he needs to help other people have these kind of traits and do these kind of things. Verse 2, he says, Older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with all purity. Now Paul turns his attention to the women that he, he must deal with in his church. He's to treat the older women in his church like he would treat his mother. I don't know about you, but um, when my mom died, I cried every day for six months. And then I cried about once a week for another six months. And then for probably 10 years, if you mentioned my mom, I went to tears. There's that kind of relationship with a mom. When my dad died, it, yeah, it wasn't, I mean, I was upset, but it didn't come. But we, we're to treat our moms gently and graciously. Our moms are the ones that raised us up. And as we learn to do that with our mother, then that's the way we should treat the other women in the church. The older women, not the younger ones, the older ones. One treats his mom with respect and gentleness as the woman who raised him and looked after him, fed and clothed him. Timothy was to look on these older women in the church as he would look on his very own mother. Next, he's to treat the younger women like he would his own sisters. He's to be gentle, fun-loving, and protective like he would with those whom he grew up with and in his own household. John Hamby again says this, he says, Younger women are to be treated with all purity, literally absolute purity that means never doing anything that would cause that person harm. That includes mentally, spiritually, or emotionally. It means being concerned that they continue to grow spiritually. I'm afraid a lot of our pastors, and not all obviously, but a lot of our pastors have fallen prey when they've been trying to help young ladies. And it's, it's made for a huge upheavals in the church and a lack of trust for the church. But the ideal is that the pastor, with an open door to his office, can comfort a younger woman and encourage her and bless her and bring her along. The point in these two verses is that the church is the place to practice family relationships. All members are to be treated with respect, kindness, care, and love. The church is like one's family and can be better than one's family. I believe that. I've been in churches where there's such deep relationships, it's, it's wonderful. It can also be really hard when there's a rupture in the relationships. But the church should be like that family. Maybe... You've had a tough relationship with your dad or mom or a sibling. The church is also the place where one can learn to relate properly to others, especially parents if, if there's been abuse or hurt. 
The church is also the place where there should be unity between the ages and not splitting off into different age groups. When I first became a Christian, I, I, I got saved under Charles Stanley's ministry, and so I went to First Baptist Church in Atlanta. And I was a single guy, so I went to the singles group. They had a singles group at their church. And uh, there was probably 40 of us, 30 or 40 of us. And um, there were good-looking girls in there. That was one of the reasons I went in there. You know, I'm a young guy. I wanted to find a godly woman. So um, that, that niche of the church began to grow. And I went over to, and lived in England for a couple of years doing some mission work. And uh, the head of the group wrote me a note and said that there are now 400 young people in the church or in the singles group, and they were having 115 weddings that year. I mean, I was, I was stunned. 115 weddings? But they were marrying godly people. The church had nurtured that so that, you know, young people have needs and they want to start families and do all that, so they nurtured that. I'm not saying every church can do that. I've, I've never been able to do that in any of the churches I've pastored. We've had single groups. But um, they still were a part of the whole body. It wasn't just a singles church. It wasn't just young people. It was the whole body. And there needs to be that in the church today. The youth need to learn from us older folks, and us older folks need to have some of the energy of the youth. So it, there's just this thing that works back and forth. Now, <clears throat> Paul addresses one specific group in the church after this, and it's widows. Apparently, there are a lot of problems with, those in that, with widows in that day. It's reported that in the 3rd and 4th century, the church in Rome took care of 1,500 widows. There was no social security system, no welfare, none of that. In fact, there's not much of that in any of the rest of the world, apart from Western Europe and, and us. If you go to India or... Uh, Malaysia or most of the Middle East, there's no care for older folks. There, are, there was a special order of widows for the early church in the third and fourth century that was specifically uh, for prayer and acts of service. Um, Luke uh, talks about Anna in Luke chapter 2. I don't know if you're able to get that up, but I gave it to her late. But let me just read that. Luke chapter um, there it is. She's amazing. <laughs> so um, you probably heard this story, usually at Christmas time, but listen to this lady. She was amazing. She, there was a, also a prophet, Anna, or a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. In other words, they were married for seven years. Um, and then was a widow from that point on, until she was 84. She never left the temple and worshiped night, day, night and day, fasting and praying. And coming up to them that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. She knew who Jesus was as a child because she'd spent all this time in God's presence. She was an example that basically Paul and the early church looked back to as the kind of woman that should be involved in the, in the inner workings of the church via prayer. 
And because of that, Paul um, gives these regulations now, if you would, for widows in verses 3 through 7 and then 9 and 10. He says, honor widows who are really widows. So the Bible has much to say about the treatment of widows and honors them in a way that which most cultures do not. Um, years ago, I was in Turkey, and uh, we, we met with the church in, in uh, it wasn't Ephesus, but it was right next to Ephesus. It was a town that's right there. I can't think of the name of it anymore. But um, we got together with the, uh, the missionary and several members of a small little church he was starting, and they were all converted Muslims in this one fellow brought his mother with him, and uh, he was the one that took care of her. There was no social system to drop her into and take care of, and she was an angry, bitter woman. In fact, I've never met an older Muslim woman who was gracious, because their culture doesn't treat them graciously and, and gently. And Paul here is admonishing the church to take care of the widows and honor them in a way which most cultures do, do not. Throughout the Bible, justice and love are demanded for them. God is called a father of the fatherless, a defender of widows in Psalm 86.5. I think she'll have that up there in a second. A father of the fatherless and a defender of widows. If God is called that, how much more should we be doing that? Widows are to be valued for who they are in themselves. John Stott says, they're to be valued for who they are in themselves and are said to deserve special honor, protection, and care. Throughout the Bible, justice and love are demanded for them. Now, don't step away from me right now. <laughs> We're talking about widows, but there's more to that than just this. So hang in there with me. Early in the New Testament church, seven leaders were appointed to supervise the di distribution to the widows in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 6. Let me read these first seven verses. Now, in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. Now, these are both Jews, Jewish Hebrews and Jewish Hellenists, or Hellenist Jews. Because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. In other words, everybody was getting in line in front of them and weren't taking care of them. So verse 2 says, Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. It takes time to prepare from the word of God. So therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. This is a holy business for the church. Verse 4, we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Philip, Procurus, I hope I pronounce all these right, Nicanor, Timon, Pharmaeus, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And then finally, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread. You see, when they organized the church, and they took care of the needs in the church, it was at that point that the word of God spread, and the church 
grew, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. As a result of widows being taken care of, the priest multiplied. They, they came to understand God's love and care and concern. You know, we had this ministry in, in, the, uh, in First Baptist Church amongst singles, I've yet to ever be in a church in America, and I may be wrong, maybe y'all do this, that has a specific ministry that's set aside just for widows. And yet that's what this is talking about. Paul says we're to take care of the most vulnerable in our society. Widows being one, we could go on down the line, there's lots of other great needs in our society. Early in the New Testament church, those seven leaders were appointed. Later, James says that the treatment of widows and orphans was defined that what was true and undefiled religion. James chapter 1, verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. The church is instructed to support the widows who are truly widows. Now, Paul goes through this definition of widows and, and who should actually be uh, supported by the church. And, and basically, the qualifications for that, it was primarily the work of the church to extend care to this most vulnerable group in society. Most societies, even in our day, as I've said, do not take care of this class of people. Now, verse 4. The first line of defense for widows is the nuclear family. In verse 4, he says, But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. I think most of us probably do that in our communities today. But where did that come from? It wasn't in society before Christ came. It wasn't in society before the New Testament church began. The nuclear family was given the responsibility 2,000 years ago to take care of their widows. And they're doing it to this day as, as part of the influence of the church. Maybe we need to revisit some of that too. We want generally, and I'm saying this graciously please, but we want to let nursing homes or retirement centers care for our parents instead of us taking care of them. It's hard sometimes to have an older person in your home if you're younger. And I think for me, I know at my age, I'm 70, so I'm not the oldest one here. Thank you, Blake. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I would have a really hard time living with my kids right now and having them take care of me. But in that day and time, that was a necessity, and there's still some of that necessity even today. I was with the guy who married us, Dave Knopp. We're the only wedding he ever did, but he was my best friend from uh, when I lived in England. Godly, godly man. He, um, his parents, his dad was 36 when he married his mother, who was 32, and they decided they wanted four or five children, so they had um, twins, boys, the first one first group, then they had Dave, then they had twin boys again, so they had their five, all boys, 
Then they had four more after that. They had nine boys. So Dave was, I said, how's your mom? Because his, his dad had died several years ago of heart failure. He was 95 or 94 when he died. Mom's 104. He says, Beach, you got to get in the car with my mom. And I said, why is that? She says, she's an utter joy to be in the car with me. I said, what do you mean? She goes, we go down the road and she goes, thank you, Lord, for the red light. Thank you, Lord, for the green light. Thank you, Lord, for the autumn. Thank you, Lord, for the flowers. Thank you. I mean, she's just like that the whole time. She's just sold out to God. What a blessing to Dave and his family. What an example. So not all older folks are tough, but some of us are. I think I, my folks, my, my kids would have a hard time putting up with me if I had to be in the house with them. But still, we need to think about how we're going to care for one another. Verse 5 says, Now, she who is really a widow and left alone, trusts in God and continues in supplications, prayers, night and day. So now he's giving this um, job description, if you would, for what widows were to do at that, in that day. I think that would be building up the church in our day. We definitely need more prayer. We definitely need more taking care of what goes on in the church. And in the Baptist church, we used to have these potlucks. I don't know. Y'all don't call them potlucks here. I don't think. Okay, you call them potlucks. So I counted on the older women to bring their best dish to the potluck. I gained 20 pounds over a period of years. You know, most Baptist pastors have a, a bulge in front because of the holy bird, fried chicken, and all the things that went in, you know. Our, our widows can do some amazing things, and, and the older gals without being widows. Paul alludes to this when he says, that, or as he, as he encourages us to understand who a true widow is, they're to be cared for by the church like one would care for his own mother. She's to be a godly woman who is a prayer warrior and a seeker of God, a widow who was to be supported by the church if she was without support, that is, without resources, without the customary diary, with no family to help her. Those who are eligible for support are those who have no one else to turn to. Widowhood alone does not qualify for support by the church. The church is not... In the business of caring for all widows, we're in the business of caring for our widows. Verse 16 at the end of the passage says, If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them, and do not let the church be burdened that it may relieve those who are really widows. So the church is to care for them, but only if the family does not. Responsibility for support of widows rests first with the family. When Christian families meet their own responsibilities, the church is able to care for those who have no family resources. Verse 6, Paul says, but she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. Now, he's making a reference here to um, the flesh. Basically, as it, he's saying that a younger widow will be wanting to get married, wanting to get involved again um, with a man. In verse uh, 7, he says, And these things command that they may be blameless. So he wants, he wants the widows to be taken care of, but he also wants to, the church to understand that 
other, the, the younger widows need to be sort of ushered into uh, relationship and marriage. In verse 9, um, I'm skipping verse 8 for a reason. It says, verse 9, do not let a widow under 60, year old, 60, 60 years old be taken into the number, and not unless she has been the wife of one man. So Paul is instructing them about the qualifications for the widow who is to be helped. She must be at least 60 years old, which was a very old woman, by the way, at that time. The average lifetime then was about 40. So you can imagine this is a much older person in that culture. Um, she's to have been the wife of just one husband. That doesn't mean, though, that her, hu uh, her husband couldn't have died she could have remarried. It just means that she's not involved with a lot of different men to meet her own emotional immaturity and stuff. So she, she may have lost several husbands to death. As, as I studied this, I thought, you know, that was a warring society. The Roman army was a major deal in, in, the, in that time. So a lot of husbands may have died in battle. She, was, she has raised her own children and opened her house up to others and shown them hospitality. She, she's a servant to others, and, and this is shown by her willingness to wash feet. If you look at verse 10, this is interesting. Um, verse 10, it has a lot of ifs in it. She says, um, she's well reported for good works if she has brought her children. These are all conditions. If she's brought up her children, if she's lodged strangers, if she's washed the saints' feet, if she's relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. So um, how many of you have washed feet lately? <laughs> I haven't. <laughs> but the point is, is that we're to be involved in good works. The, the widow is to be involved, and it's obvious to the congregation. And then that person would qualify for the help of the congregation. Uh, John Stott quotes Tertullian. Tertullian was a third century um, church father and he said this and this time the registered widows give themselves or gave themselves to prayer nursed the sick cared for the orphans vi visited christians in prison evangelized pagan women and taught female con converts in preparation for baptism so they had a very specific thing that they had the widows doing at that time so that the church might prosper it was all about spreading the love of Christ into the culture, and it was shown through the weakest in that day and time, the widow. As Christ, as Christ's church took care of the widow, they were built up and lifted up before a culture that didn't really care about widows. There's a third thing, the responsibilities of family. I want to go back to verse 8. In verse 8 it says, But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Paul always balances life out with both good theology and practical living. He calls on the families to be the first to take care of the widows. They're to be the first line of defense for the widow and the church. They're to take care of the one who took care of them. And they're not to allow the church to be burdened so that the church can take care of those who have no one to take care of them. The church in America, historically, this is what happened about 100 to 120 years ago, we handed off the care 
of our indigent, the care of our widows, the care of our poor to the government. Before about 1920, the church did it all. And look where it's got us. <laughs> Just think about that. An idea that the government could do it better than the church has resulted in a welfare state, whereas if Mitt Romney was right, 52 or 55% of all people in America receive some kind of subsidy from the government. And we could argue about how they live, whether they live righteously or not. That's not the point of this sermon. But the church, we've stepped away from our responsibility that Paul calls us to, that Christ calls us to. We better get ready because I think we're going to end up having to take that all back because our government is basically bankrupt. And at some point, that $33 trillion of, of debt we're in is going to pop. I don't know how it's going to pop. <clears throat> That's not the sermon. But it, it's not going to last forever. I'm telling you, it's not going to last forever. Lynn and I, <clears throat> when we first got married, we lived in a a retirement apartment complex had just been built. We were, when we got in there, I think there were five residents or maybe 10. We were hired as the night managers, so we lived on the second floor. We moved out about two years later when we went to our first church, and um, uh, there were 115 residents at that time. There were all kinds of residents. It was, it was a neat deal. My daughter, Rebecca, was born there. She had 110 grandmothers. She didn't learn to walk till she was 22 months, and I think that was because her feet literally never touched the floor. She'd pass from one grandmother to the next. It was just great. We had the, uh, a gal named Ruth. She, her, she and her husband started Child Evangelism Fellowship. Godly, godly woman. Um, we had a guy who had been with uh, um, China Inland Mission, and then he'd run the, uh, um, uh, the retreat center at... at uh, Cannon Beach for years after he got kicked out of China. Um, neat place to live. But in the midst of that, there was a lot of lost people. One lady, I remember very distinctly, <clears throat> she, um, she wandered around the, the complex in a pink uh, nightgown and a um, robe. And if you remember Phyllis Diller, her hair went out like that. She looked like Phyllis Diller. And if you first looked at it, you thought, this lady's crazy. But here's the story. She and her husband um, struck oil uh, right around Oklahoma City in the 30s or 40s, and they became fabulously wealthy. And in the midst of it, they bought a whole bunch of downtown buildings in Oklahoma City. She's reputed, now this is in 1984, 85, so you can do the math, inflation-wise, but she was reputed to be worth $100 million. And she was a bit eccentric, but when you sat down and just really talked with her, she had all of her facilities. She was not a nutcase, although she had the hair. <laughs> but her family wanted her money more than they wanted her. So they declared her incompetent and put her 230 miles away at Oakwood Village, where we managed and never in the two years we were there came to see her or interact with her. That's not the way to treat our parents or widows. The church should be on the advent guard of, of taking care of the most 
needy in our society, widows being one. So the last thing, responding to young widows. How do you take care of the younger ladies who may find themselves widowed? Maybe their husband served in the military, or maybe he was a police officer, or maybe he died. I heard this last week, of, or two weeks ago, of this guy who was like, 38 or 40, and he contracted some kind of brain cancer, and he was gone. I ran into this gal, um, we were uh, walking around a lake in Appalachia, um, at, in the Blue Ridge Parkway, right off the Blue Ridge Parkway, two weeks ago, and uh, these two gals walked up, and they had little kids, and so our grandkids, and then we're all playing together, and her husband had died about three months before of a brain deal, and she was a widow by herself. Her family was helping her, and she was a strong Christian. We prayed with her. That was so cool because we didn't know what else to do. We were all struck. So what does a young widow do? Paul now gives his final instruction concerning widows, and specifically the young ones. The first reason not to regularly take care of the younger widows is that they will eventually probably want to remarry. Look at verse 11. It says, but refuse the younger widows for when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry. That's not a bad thing. They want to get married again. But they need to marry in the faith. That's so important. They're not to be unequally yoked. Paul is indicating that they'll be drawn away by their sexual desires and want to even remarry outside the faith. Paul says that they will grow wanton against Christ, which means They'll even try to satisfy themselves with an unbelieving husband. Paul clearly states in 2 Corinthians, I've gone too long, I apologize, I just realized that. Um, let me just finish, I'll, I'll, I won't be a minute. In 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 6, verses 14 to 18, he, he says that we're not to be unequally yoked. That means in marriage as well as in business. I... Uh, when I pastored my first church, I had 40 ladies in my church who had married unbelieving men. And not a one of them were really happy in their marriages. Not a one. You want to, you want to be equally yoked. Verse 12, apparently they had made some kind of vow to the church when the church took care of them. The younger widows had apparently habitually broken their vow, and this had set up a guilty conscience for, and kept them out of the church. They want to encourage the younger widows to, to do whatever they need to do to be happy in life and to walk along with them, but there had to be some kind of um, <laughs> restraint there. So he talks about um, them becoming gossips or idle. Uh, the Puritans used to have this saying, idle hands are the devil's playground. Um, that, I don't think that's as much an issue today because a lot of our ladies work. Paul rounds this all out by calling on the younger widows to go ahead and get married. Um, and then in the last verse, verse 16, Paul brings it full scope by saying that if a woman can care for widows, then this is her obligation and is a good work that will ultimately help the church to do her ministry. Um, let me just finish with this. We live in an age when the state takes care of the infirm through Social Security. Those who have handled their money wisely will have more independence than when, when they get to their retirement years. People live longer. 60 is younger, is young by our standards today. 
the average age of life is about 78. But with the state of our economy, the ballooning budget, the prospect of runaway inflation, I believe that it would be wise in light of this scripture for the church to consider how it might better serve those who will be widows and may very well struggle just for the basics in the future. I apologize for going over. May the Lord bless his word. Let's pray just for a moment. God, thank you for your word. Um, it gives us instruction in things we often don't even think about. And Lord, there's, uh, I believe, great need for the church to reach out and begin to care for those who are um, often set aside in our society and forgotten about. May, may this church and may all churches begin to reach out even more to care for the, the widows, but then also the the struggling and hurting in our society. Bless this church. Um, bring them a pastor who can help them organize to do things like this. Lord, I pray that you would just continue to use them for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.